The basis for this study is found in Luke, the 8th chapter, verses 22 to 24. And may I state, before I begin this morning, that never in all of my ministry have I felt that we are so near the end of time. Let me read this from the scripture. Luke 8, 22 to 24. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into the ship with his disciples and he said unto them, let us go over into the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep and there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased. And there was a calm. This brings us now to our text. And Christ said unto them, where is your faith? Now this is a scriptural record of an actual experience which took place in the life of Jesus Christ and his disciples. They had just experienced a very busy day. Since early morning, Christ had been teaching and healing. They were so busy that they had not even taken time for food or for rest. And to make matters even worse, they were constantly being surrounded by malicious criticism and misrepresentation by the Pharisees who continually pursued Christ, making his labors more severe and harassing. So now at the close of this busy day, the Lord was utterly wearied and he determined to seek a retirement in a secluded place across the lake. Dismissing the multitude, Jesus and his disciples hastily set off in a boat to relieve the pressure of the crowds. Overcome with weariness and hunger, Jesus lays down in the stern of the little boat and is soon sound asleep. The evening is calm and pleasant, and the boat gently rides upon the lake. But suddenly, a strange darkness spreads over the lake, and the wind sweeps wildly down the mountain gorges as a fierce tempest bursts upon them. The waves, lashed by such howling wind, dash completely over the tiny little boat, threatening to engulf them. These hardy fishermen have guided their craft safely through many a storm, but this time their strength and skill avail nothing. The disciples are absolutely helpless in the face of this tempest. And you can understand why, for Satan is determined, if possible, to destroy both the master and his disciples. So absorbed are these men to save themselves that they have completely forgotten that Jesus is on board. Now, as death is imminent, they recall that it was Christ who commanded them to cross the lake. And in their helpless condition, they cry, Master, Master! But in such a stormy darkness, they see no one, and their voice is drowned in silence by the roaring tempest. Doubts and fears gripped their hearts. Had Jesus forsaken them? Could it be that he who had conquered disease and demons and even death itself could not help them now? Again they call for help, for the boat is beginning to sink. Another moment and they will be swallowed up by the angry waters. Suddenly, there is a flash of lightning and they see Jesus lying asleep undisturbed by the raging storm in amazement they cry out master carest thou not that we perish 
their cry arouses Jesus. And in the lightning glare, they see the peace of heaven on his face. Again they cry, Lord, save us, we perish. Never did a soul utter that cry unheeded. Jesus arises as the waves sweep over them. And lifting his hands, he says to the angry sea, Peace, be still. Immediately, the stormy billows cease their attack. The clouds roll away, and the stars shine forth, and the tiny boat rests upon a quiet sea. Jesus looks around at his disciples and asks sorrowfully, why are you so fearful? Where is your faith? In this life and death crisis, Jesus did not ask the questions that are so often to be found in the minds of uncertainty. He did not ask, like we would today, don't you have a bank account that you can count on? Don't you have some investments? And don't you have a lot of friends uh, that will help you? What type of insurance do you carry and how much? <laughs> no. He asked a very personal, heart-searching question. Where is your faith? You know, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that men are justified by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. And we believe that faith cometh by hearing the word of God. But now I want to ask each of us a personal question. How many of us know the faith that will be required of each one to meet the coming storm? When we are surrounded by riots, and protests leading to civil strife and war here in America. And with the United Evangelical Movement joined against us when suddenly every security we've ever known has vanished in a time of trouble such as never was. What good will it be then to talk about the prestige of our great institutions, the luxury of our beautiful churches which architects have built with our sacrificial money, and the well-edited literature and international broadcasts that our church presents, when every religious body in this world will be against us. I ask, are we ready for persecution, even the facing of a universal death decree? And then to discover that our very best friends, even those within the church we love, are testifying against us. When our world collapses around us, Will we be strong enough in the faith to stand alone? Or will we be captured in total fear as the disciples? What will our answer be when Jesus speaks, Where is your faith? I want to ask some very important questions, and somehow I hope they will awaken your minds to the approaching storm that is so soon to break upon us. I trust we will truly have the faith of Jesus. You remember in Revelations 14, 12, the remnant have two characteristics. They keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. Let's consider just for one more moment the faith of Jesus. Literally. I'm reading from Desire of Ages 336. When Jesus was awakened to meet the storm, he was in perfect peace.
peace. There was no trace of fear in word or look, for no fear was in his heart. He rested not in the possession of almighty power. Notice now. It was not as the master of sea and earth and sky that he reposed in quiet. That power he had laid down. For he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. John 5.30 He trusted in the Father's might. It was in faith, faith in God's love and care, that Jesus rested, and the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God, his Father. Let us uh, think now of some very serious questions. What sinister force is at work in our world today to overthrow the cause of God. I'm going to read two quotations from volume 9 of the testimonies from page 11 and 43, and there are two words I want you to catch and put down for deep thought. One is consolidating, and the other is confederated. Notice, the agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crises. Great changes are soon to take place in the world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. We are on the very verge of the time of trouble, and perplexities that are scarcely dreamed of are before us. A power from beneath is leading men to war against heaven. Human beings have confederated with satanic agencies to make void the law of God. Let's take this word now, consolidation. Never in my lifespan have I seen such a surge of, surge of consolidation that we now see taking place in the last ten years? The financial structures of this world are consolidating. Bank after bank are merging together in a colossal empire. Giant corporations are swallowing up one another so that a few are now controlling every aspect of life. Even denominational churches are consolidating, so that today a few are emerging with a powerful political clout. Even the nations are consolidating. Take NAFTA. You find the joining together of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. And then look at GATT, in which the third world countries are joining together for their power. Look across the Atlantic to the European Commonwealth. Here a dozen countries are uniting in a United States of Europe, which will have one currency and a tremendous trade power. Now let's look at the word confederation. We hear much today of a united nations for a new world order. And for what purpose? For peace? So that there will be no more war? Don't you be fooled. Inspiration has made it clear. It is to make void the law of God, producing a worldwide united power in which it will not be possible to buy or to sell unless you have the mark of the beast. You know, for years I have been searching to see something that would alert us to the fact 
that this United Nations is going to develop a religious organization within it. And I recently found it. In an article entitled, One World Worship, to be found in the new magazine, April 3, 1995, talking about the United Nations and what it is proposing, I found something that really shakes us. I'm quoting, ultimately, this will require a United Nations ministry of religion. Oh, now here it comes. Religions are now headed toward what may eventually form a united religious organization, the URO, and you're going to be hearing about it, structured in much the same way as the United Nations and sharing the same goals. Once created, the URO would be given the task of creating <clears throat> a new covenant for the planet. The URO will discern the nature of that covenant and with it the responsibilities rather than the rights of planetary citizenship. Do you grasp what they're talking about? Your rights won't have anything to do it's for the good of some great united cause, a one-world worship that will count. Let me continue. A globalist theologian by the name of Hans Kong was commissioned by the UNESCO, that's the United Nations, to create a declaration of global ethics which would impose a set of binding commitments upon religious leaders. Oh, see, it's coming now. From Kong's perspective, traditional religions, we read that they have an ethical obligation to cease to exist. What's he saying here? He said, all the churches are going to have to cease to exist. There's only going to be one. Let me read on. Any form of church conservatism is to be rejected. To put it bluntly, no regressive or repressive religion, whether Christian, Islamic, or Jewish, or of whatever providence, has a long-term future. Oh, there's going to be a change. And this is very evident, for it goes on to tell us that recently, as far as February 1994, 500 Christian and Jewish clergymen from 90 countries gathered in Jerusalem for the religious leadership. The conference sought to indict fundamentalism. Uh-oh. Our church is among those that you would call a fundamentalist. It says here, fundamentalism is a global menace. Can you see now what's coming? This note was taken up by the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, who urged the leaders to weed out the extremes. Are you following me? From their prospective faiths in the interest of moderating wherever possible, unstable and pathological faith expressions. And our church has so many of them. Archbishop Carey preferred illustration of pathological faith was Waco Branch Davidian sect, which perished as a result of an unprovoked federal assault. Can you imagine this great church in the world today, the leader using that of Waco and what happened there as an example of what needs to happen to the fundamentalists. I want to tell you, as I continued on, I was amazed. I read on, and other fundamentalists were demonized 
as enemies of democracy and civil liberties. What are they doing? They're putting the Seventh-day Adventist Church here as a form of demon worship as far as the Protestant churches are concerned. Oh, I could read on. I'm going to tell you, things are developing fast. The Lord said the last movements would be rapid ones. How is this crisis coming? Selected messages 2, 367. The word of God plainly declares that his law is to be scorned, trampled upon by the world. There will be an extraordinary prevalence of iniquity. And nobody can shut their eyes today at the evils and say this is not here. It is. The professed Protestant world will form a confederacy with the man of sin, and the church and the world will be in corrupt harmony. Here the great crisis is coming upon the world. The scriptures teach that popery is to regain its lost supremacy and that the fires of persecution will be rekindled through the time-serving concessions of the so-called Protestant world. Did you catch that? Did you notice a confederacy between Protestants and the man of sin? Need I tell you that this just recently happened when Protestants and Catholic leadership in 1994 signed the document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, an idea that was conceived by Charles Colson, the founder of the Prison Fellowship, and a Catholic priest by the name of Richard Newham. Christianity Today, that evangelical magazine, was so excited it called this document the most important. Let me read to you what they said. All who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. However imperfect our communion with one another, however deep our disagreements with one another, we recognize that there is but one church. Oh, it's here, friend. Great Controversy 445, written years ago, said, When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common. Let me tell you, the crisis is not coming. The crisis is here now. And our church is not telling us anything in our books or our magazines or is it being preached from the pulpit except we are told peace and safety what is the purpose of this great ecumenical movement i'll tell you it is to re-establish papal power as it was before the reformation how did the papacy accomplish its authority way back there in 538 A.D. They did it by conducting councils, conventions, and evangelical alliances. And they're doing the same today, the same strategy. There have been two great Vatican councils that have been held, and there are numerous evangelical alliances that are now being formed by dialogues between Catholics, Protestants, and Jews. And I can tell you I know of this personally because one day while I was pastor in Sacramento, California, my phone rang, and on the other end of the line I heard the voice of the Catholic priest in a nearby church. and said, you know, we're in the ecumenical movement now, and I would like to come over and speak to your people in your church on your Sabbath day, and then I will invite you to come and let you speak to my people on a Sunday. 
Well, I can tell you that my answer was no thank you. But I was recently terribly shocked to learn that my church has recently joined in a dialogue with the Lutheran Church. And you will find this in the Adventist Review for January 1995 in an editorial by William G. Johnson entitled Children of Luther, in which B.B. Beach of the Religious Liberty Department of the General Conference, with nine of our scholars from Andrews University, together with the Biblical Research Institute of the General Conference, and the Adventist Review actually conducted a dialogue with the Lutheran Church leaders. Why? Because it is the plan of the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches. And what is more shocking is that this was done knowing that the Lutherans had been holding a dialogue with the Catholics in which they had recently signed a statement, and I'm quoting from the Ministry of the Church, a joint Lutheran and Catholic commission, in which they acknowledge the possibility and the desirability of the papal ministry. Let me tell you something. The greatest hoax that has ever been perpetrated upon the members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church by its leadership is that we are not members of the World Council of Churches. Let me read this to you from Robert Falkenberg, which he gave in 1993 in a statement over the radio, KCDS, in February 19. I quote, The Seventh-day Adventist Church is not, has not been, will not be a member of the World Council of Churches. I care, I don't care what evidence you have printed to the contrary. It is simply a fabrication. It is not true. It is a lie. Well, Brother Falkenberg, that is true, but it is only half true. Why don't you have the courage to tell us all the truth? Let me read to you from the collection of the churches by Edgar C. Bundy, published by the Church League of America, in which it tells us that the World Council of Churches is made up of various branch organizations controlled by the World Council of Churches, including the National Council of Churches, and the lesser branches as the ministerial associations in the various communities. Now, now follow me. You see, we are really connected with the National Council of Churches. And many, if not most, of our ministry today are members of the ministerial associations in the various communities. And because of this, we find that we are in a position where we are technically members. Let me read on what it tells us in this book here. It points out that all of the different churches are technically members of the World Council of Churches, yet the World Council of Church policy states that no church is a member of it, but only the various branches. Thus, the leaders of the various churches can technically tell their membership that their church is not a member, when in reality it is through connection of the various branches that they are a part of the World Council of Churches. This was a clear masterpiece designed by the devil himself. For there were many churches whose members said, we don't want to be a part of the World Council of Churches. And yet it was worked out so that they could tell their members, we are not members. 
And yet, we support them with something like $8,000 a year. We participate in all of their committees. We are organized with them and we are funneling down into our church all of the things that the World Council of Churches plans for. Listen, I could give you much, I mustn't spend time on it, but W.B.B. Beach is the secretary of the Ecumenical World Council, which is a part of the World Council of Churches. Let me read to you from the Ecumenical Press of October 1986. Staff members of more than a dozen Christian world communions. Organizations held their annual conference of the secretaries. It included separate sessions with the Pope. Did you know that the ecumenical movement is really controlled and being guided by the Pope? I read on. The conference chose Pere Dupree as the secretary of the Vatican Secretariat for Promoting Christian Unity as the chairperson. And who do you suppose is the secretary? B.B. Beach, Director of the Public Affairs and Religious Liberty Department of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, continues as the group's secretary. No wonder there is coming down to us celebration which was planned by the Roman Catholic Church. No wonder we are hearing of the Eucharist in our Lord's Suppers as held in some of our churches today. This term is the most sacrilegious thing of taking the Lord's life, the Lord's life again. Oh, how can we fit into some of these things. And the ecumenical movement in itself that is trying to promote Pentecostalism. And we see it coming in with the clapping of the hands of singing from the screen rather so that your hands are free so that you can lift them to heaven. All of these things. And does the Seventh-day Adventist leadership really know what they are doing? Well, let me read to you from the Seventh-day Adventist Encyclopedia, Volume 10 of the Bible Commentary, page 410 and 411. The ecumenical movement <clears throat> will become a concerted effort to unite the world and to secure universal peace and security by enlisting the power of the civil government in a universal religio-political crusade to eliminate all dissent. Seventh-day Adventists envisioned this crusade as the great apostasy in which John the Revelator refers to as Babylon the Great. Oh, I could go on. I want to tell you, no wonder our leaders today are pushing these things. I wonder, as we dialogue with the Lutherans, are we also dialoguing with the Catholics? I was shaken recently to learn of a strategic alliance being proposed by the president <clears throat> of the Colorado Conference, Charles Sanifer who was quoted in an article in the Denver Post telling of a proposed partnership between Porter Hospital and the Seventh-day Adventist Hospital in Denver and the Roman Catholic Hospital of Denver that <clears throat> might include consolidating finance, operation, and management. Can you conceive someday driving over in Denver and they're looking up and seeing the Catholic name over the Denver, over the, our hospital in Denver? It's going to come. 
Sanifer is quoted as saying, and I'm quoting, this is not just a loose casual affiliation we are contemplating. We intend there to be real integration. It's anticipated that the strategic alliance will culminate with the parties forming a single financial operating unit to best serve the health care needs of the community. Let me ask you something. Don't our leaders anymore believe that the Pope is the Antichrist in Bible prophecy? In Great Controversy 571 are these words, the papacy is just what prophecy declared that it should be. The apostasy of the latter times, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Shall this power, whose record for a thousand years is written in the blood of saints, be now acknowledged as a part of the Church of Christ? And then in volume 7, page 108 of the Testimonies, to bind ourselves up by contracts with those not of our faith is not in the order of God. We are to treat with kindness and courtesy those who refuse to be loyal to God. But we are never, never to unite with them in counsel regarding the vital interests of his work. Why are church leaders going absolutely contrary to what God has given to us through his prophet? These things will only lead to persecutions. Great Controversy 445. When this shall be gained, then in the effort to secure complete conformity, uniformity, it will be only a step to the resort of force. How is Protestant America being betrayed from within? I continue reading Great Controversy 573. In the movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions and usage of the church the support of the state, Protestants are following in the steps of the papists. Nay, more, they are opening the door for the papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which he had lost in the old world. And that which gives greater significance to this movement is the fact that the principal object contemplated is the enforcement of Sunday observance. Did you notice those words? To regain in Protestant America the supremacy which he lost in the old world. History reveals that in Europe, during the 1260 years of papal supremacy, Rome was in complete control of every kingdom, and every law was based on Catholic law. Do we realize what it must have been to live there? Freedom of worship as we know it today was absolutely forbidden. You could be destroyed to think differently than that which Rome taught. Freedom as we have experienced it in our lifetime did not exist then. A hundred to a hundred and fifty millions were put to death. You see, the reason why the founders of America established a strict separation of church and state was to give full freedom for religious groups to flourish as their own message would grow. But today's religious right is not satisfied with this freedom. It feels driven by the name of God to conduct its doctrinal principles into the political arena. I was amazed to read the Monitor of McAllen, Texas, January 24, 1995, in which the editor said some very bold things. He talks about the political principles. For example, of this new religious right. He says, 
it tends to confine women to traditional roles, prescribing any productive rights and impose public manifestations of religion such as school prayer. It is punitive in its outlook on people who receive government assistance and has a retributive view of criminal justice offering strong support for capital punishment. And then are these words. The religious right brooks no tolerance or possibility of divergent moral beliefs by equally religious folks. Perhaps for that reason it seems so full of hatred and intolerance, hardly biblical values. And for those who do not subscribe to its agenda, the religious right unleashes its version of the Inquisition." Unquote. Here we see developing in America the beginning of the image of the beast. And we have been witnesses of this for the election results of 1994 could never have happened had not Catholics and Protestants united together. All of America is waiting for a change in welfare benefits. You see, something must be done to balance the national budget of national debt. If things continue before the end of this decade, this country will go bankrupt. For we will have to pay every penny collected in taxes to pay the interest. We are told that when our debt reaches five to seven trillion, that disaster will come. And this is why we hear now so much talk about cutting back on the welfare benefits in order to solve this crisis. Let me read to you from a letter written by David Wilkinson, the pastor of the Times Square Church in New York. This man, David Wilkinson, is the individual you know who has told the government that he can take care of anyone who has a dope problem. He can heal them if only he can get them to speak in tongues. Now listen to what he says. For the past few years, I have been warning that America is on the brink of frightful rioting in all major cities. I have had reoccurring visions. Oh, now he is becoming a prophet. But notice what he says. I have had reoccurring visions of over 1,000 fires burning at one time here in New York City. I am convinced of race riots that will soon explode. New York City is right now a powder keg ready to blow. Federal and state welfare cutbacks will be the spark that ignites the fuse. Next year, New York could have over 100,000 angry men on the streets, enraged because they have been cut off from their benefits. Please do not mistake me. I am not commenting on the rightness or the wrongness of welfare cutbacks. For reform may be badly needed. All I am saying is that the reforms will be used as a reason to take to the streets and burn and riot. Every police officer I have talked to on the streets agrees with me. They all say, soon, very soon, everything will explode. I tell you, the time is coming here in New York and in other major cities when federal troops will have to move in to restore order. New York City will have tanks running down its avenue. Multitudes will flee in cars, camping out in the countryside. Business will virtually come to a standstill. It could be months before order is restored. Churches will be closed. Fires will rage everywhere. Now, if and when this does happen as he sees it, this could be the very situation in which the churches will cry out to the government 
for a Sunday law to stop all of this. Why will churches seek the aid of the state? Great Controversy 443. It was apostasy that led the early church to seek the aid of civil government, and this prepared the way for the development of the papacy. Said Paul, there shall come a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed. So apostasy in the church will prepare the way for the image of the beast. You know, God speaks of this in the second angel's message when he said in Revelation 14, 8, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Since the healing of the deadly wound, which began in 1929, Protestant America has been making changes. In 1935, there was a man, Professor Belts, who conducted a survey back there just five years after the deadly wound began to heal. He sent out questionnaires to the leading Protestant ministers throughout America. The statistics speak for themselves. These ministers of Protestant churches confessed as follows that they believe no longer in the Bible as being trustworthy. So spoke the Baptist, 37%. The Congregational Church, 91% said they no longer believed the Bible to be trustworthy. The Episcopalians, 96%. The Presbyterians, 80%. Ever since the healing started in the wound, so there has also been a change in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But let me continue this parallel. Forty years later, in Look Magazine of 1970, 25 years ago, they sent out a survey to all of the students in the North American seminaries and asked them a question, and they answered, only 1% believe that Jesus Christ would ever return in the second coming. And these are the ministers that are in the churches today. And should we be amazed when we look in the books that are coming from our presses, which are teaching the doctrines of Babylon today, that we can be saved in sin, that we don't have to keep the law, Obedience is no longer required. That uh, we do not have to overcome that Jesus did it all for us on the cross. All we have to do is just believe. Things are happening today. We see the image of the beast developing. Great Controversy 445. When the leading churches of the United States uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon deserters will inevitably result. What is meant by giving life to the image of the beast? Volume 5, page 712. When our nation shall so abjure the principles of its government as to select a Sunday law, Protestantism will in this act join hands with popery. It will be nothing else than giving life to the tyranny which has long been eagerly watching its opportunity to spread again into active despotism. And so, in Great Controversy 449, hence the enforcement of Sunday-keeping in the United States would be an enforcement of the worship of the beast and its image. Have we been told when it will be formed? Yes, we have. Selected Messages 81, Book 2. The Lord has shown us clearly that the image of the beast will be formed before probation closes. And what is the mark? The mark is the observance of the first day of the week. Volume 8 of the Testimonies, 117. 
And what will the enforcement of the National Sunday Law do to our church? I'm reading Selected Messages 368. When the law of God is made void, the church, speaking of our church, will be sifted by fiery trials and a larger proportion than we now anticipate will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And what will happen to our nation? Review and Herald, May 2, 1893. The results of the apostasy will be national ruin. So we see it all coming together. I believe, as we have been told in volume 5, page 451, the angel of mercy is about to take her flight, never to return. Volume 5, page 451. We may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. Let me tell you, friend, a storm is coming. May I ask you again that personal question? Is Christ on board your ship? When this storm breaks, will the Master ask, where is your faith? Will you cringe in despair or will you be able to go to sleep at night just like Jesus in that little boat without fear in a raging storm because his faith was in his God, his Father. God, give us this kind of faith today is my prayer. Loving Father, as we see these events taking place in the world around us, oh God, help us to be more on our knees, help us to be praying, help us to be searching, help us to be pleading for the divine power that can put us into a relationship with God so that when it comes, we will not be afraid to stand for truth though the heavens fall. Bless us is the cry of our heart today with the peace of heaven we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.